Hello, and welcome to episode 24 of The Five By, your source for rapid-fire board game reviews and a proud member of the Inside Voices Network. On this week's episode, Calvin explores Twilight Imperium 4th Edition, Ruth visits Favelas, I'm on a road trip with Galaxy Trucker, and Catherine takes a tour of Spirit Island. But first, Mason guides us through a Sewell. Hi, I'm Mason Weaver. Let's talk about Azul. I love abstract games, but I don't own as many as I'd like. Publishers, obviously, throw themes onto great abstracts all the time. People like a little bit of theme or something nice to look at or whatever, and a theme that really grabs people is often the only way to get attention for new abstracts. Sometimes the thematic connections to underlying gameplay are really strong and reinforce the rules, sometimes not. As my friend Luke Matthews said recently, every game is an abstraction. Every theme is, quote, pasted on. It's all just numbers anyway. And frankly, I don't disagree. Azul is a new abstract game from well-known and very well-loved designer Michael Kiesling and published by Plan B Games, people who brought you Century Spice Road earlier this year. If Kiesling sounds familiar, he's often paired with longtime co-designer Wolfgang Kramer, and together they've had dozens of games published and won two Spiel de Jar awards. In Azul, you are ostensibly uh, a tile artisan in the court of King Manuel I of Portugal. The king has brought you to the royal palace of Evora to tile the walls in the new Spanish style. This theme is totally meaningless during play, and frankly doesn't help players understand the rules or scoring in the slightest, but hot damn, this game is beautiful because of it. The production quality of these tiles is insane. They're lovely, super chunky, screen printed, super dense, and they make a wonderful clacking sound when stacked or shaken in the draw bag. They're about the size and shape of Starburst candy, and every single person I've taught this to has said, hey, those look like Starbursts. So what's going on here, and why is it fun? I'm going to take a shot at being more reductive on this show, because you're not here to learn how to play the game. If you want a tutorial, go check out that YouTube website, they're all over it. In Azul, you start with a blank board and a table full of little circles. Each of these circles has four random tiles on it. They're factories or something, but that doesn't matter. There's only one thing you can do on your turn. Take all the tiles of one color off of the circle and push the rest of the tiles into the center. After a couple of turns, there are a bunch of tiles in the center too, and you can take all of one color from there as well. When you take tiles that go on your board, and you're trying to fill up the left-hand rows so you can push tiles into the right-hand rows to build your tiled wall or whatever, which is how you get points. The kicker, the real knife twister, if you will, in Azul, is that the tiles you take must only go in one row. If you take more tiles than a row can hold, they're going to cost you negative points. You also have to take all of the tiles every round, so if you're not paying attention, you could get stuck with a big stack of tiles and know where to put them on your board. And when that happens, as we said, you're going to take a bunch of negative points, which is bad because points are good. There's a mild learning curve here for sure. Um, not for, hmm, what am I allowed to do? But for, hmm, I don't know what I should take. And after a single game, everyone I've taught has either said, oh, now I get it, let's play again. Or, oh, now I get it, I can't wait to play again. At the same time, almost every game I've taught has started out a little shaky, and I think it's because of this learning curve. It's not readily apparent what your best choices are until you've watched a full game play out. There's not a set number of rounds, and so the game ends when one player fills a horizontal row. If you play with someone who's really heavily into rushing the end game, you may find yourself royally hosed and needing another two turns that you thought you were going to have. It's also not readily apparent from just reading the rules that you might want to take negative points on purpose occasionally in order to either mitigate a worse choice for your future self, or to force an appointment to take even more negative points. Now, in a four-player game, this doesn't seem to happen as often, but at two players, Azul can definitely stray into kill-or-be-killed territory, and the tile drafting becomes absolutely critical. Azul has some hidden but trackable information, which appeals to my love for games that work at a wide range of skill levels. Because the discarded tiles go into an open pile, you always know, if you're keeping track, what's left in the bag. 
After a few plays, you can start making decisions with this information. You might not want to start a new row of yellow tiles if you know there aren't enough yellows in the bag to complete it next turn, but you also could totally ignore this information and make only tactical decisions based on current board state, which is mostly what I do because my memory is exceedingly poor. After about 10 plays, I'm still extremely ungood at Azul. I don't think there are dominant strategies that can be used in every game, though. The random grouping of colors each round forces you to adapt your long-term strategies to fit your current tactical situation, which is exactly why I like it so much. My only complaints about Azul are the player boards themselves. I do wish they were linen finished like the boxes, but they're not. I'm also highly interested in the possibility of someone making laser cut overlays for the boards to keep my tiles straight and to keep my scoring cube from moving. The box itself is lovely. It's smaller than a ticket to ride size, about 10 by 10, and has a perfectly designed insert and very little wasted space. Is Azul going to win Spiel de Jar this year? I think so. It's the right weight from a well-established German designer that the SDJ judges know and like, it's highly replayable, super fun, and is absolutely beautiful. My prediction is that in 10 years, you won't be able to remember offhand anything else that came out in 2017, but Azul will be on its 8th print run. So who should buy Azul? Everyone. Look, if you're listening to the 5 buy, you need to go buy this game. You're going to love it. Only exceptions to that might be people who only play 5-player plus games, people who only play solo games, people who only play games with children under 5, and people who only play heavily thematic American-style skirmish games. This game is for everyone else. I give Azul 20 out of 20 delicious fruit-flavored decorative porcelain tiles. I'm Mason Weaver. You can find me on Twitter at my new handle, at Discount Compost, much to Mike Risley's endless distaste. Happiest of holidays to you and yours. We'll see you back here in 2018. The first time I played Twilight Imperium 4th Edition, I made the mistake of leaving a couple of my border planets lightly defended next to a wormhole. So when the Necrovirus, which are like a race of galaxy-eating sentient AI, sent a strike fleet through said wormhole, assimilated my planet, stole my fighter technology by integrating knowledge of my inhabitants' blueprints into their technological hive mind, I really only had myself to blame. Twilight Imperium is a machine that turns time into stories, with its grand clashes of empires, secretive politicking in the back rooms of the Galactic Senate, trade embargoes being negotiated and enforced via gunboat diplomacy, the glittering of assault lasers as fleets descend upon each other in a titanic mash of plastic. It's joyful. It's, it's joyful to play, it's joyful to watch all of these narratives spinning out of the hexes of the galaxy between you and the other players at the table and coalesce into something absolutely magical. I have played maybe 50 games of TI 3rd edition. None of them have ended without at least one player getting into character and speaking as their race, whether the enigmatic ghost of Kreis who can manipulate the very fabric of space-time or the magnanimous emirates of Hakan, whose lucrative trade contracts are merely the velvet glove upon an iron fist of strength. No other game I've ever played has been so dense with narrative possibility. I mean, it's got 17 different races to choose from that you can sink your teeth into and really get behind and roleplay. Each one has their own unique technologies, chip designs, abilities, bargaining chips. I mean, you could play a race three or four times before you get tired of it, and then there's 16 more. The game itself is grand space opera infused with nail-biting tension as you watch the plan you've been steadily bringing together for the past two hours hinge completely on your neighbor, not noticing the single chink in their otherwise impenetrable grip on the central systems, or whether you can negotiate a secret alliance with a player on the other side of the table via text message. 
mechanically, there's nothing about Twilight Imperium that would be familiar to you. I mean, it's hexes, action cards, dice rolling. What really brings this game alive, what really makes it magical, are those story moments, those small things. Like, when I propose a law that will forever ban capital class ships, and then solicit bribes to sway my votes from the players who are relying on those ships? Or when the fate of the galaxy hangs in the balance of you making a thousand to one shot with your fighter squadron, and the entire table is standing up and watching you shake the dice in your fist? Through the 11 years that it's been in print, third edition has been hailed as an eater of weekends. It's long, it's complicated, it's impossible to schedule, the errata sheet is as long as your leg. When I unboxed my copy of fourth edition, my initial impression was, is that it? Is that all there is? There's something missing. Because, you see, my third edition box with its two expansions is stuffed so full of baggies, right? Optional modules, variants, tokens, cards. In fourth edition, almost all of that stuff has just been burned off, seared away. I mean, yes, they've overhauled a lot of the rules. The trading technology and political systems have all been completely redone. But the game has not been so much streamlined as laser finished. The action starts faster. The decisions are made more meaningful. I mean, even the player mats are more intuitive and accessible and made to just get you into the action. You know, instead of trying to remember which rulebook you need to look through for the one exception that applies to the situation, you can stare at the galactic map and craft that strategy and think, how am I going to beat that bastard sitting on the other side of the table? But nothing about the heart of the game has changed. Those magic moments when you push your fleet across the border crossing a Rubicon that cannot be uncrossed, that moment when you glimpse a path to victory that you thought had closed, that tension when you're rolling the dice in your hand defending your home planet from the invasions of your once ally. Twilight Imperium is a masterpiece. Do not be intimidated by its admittedly very big box or the hundreds of plastic miniatures and chits and tokens, because 4th edition is not only the most accessible version of TI, it's also the best version of TI. It's totally captivating utterly unique, an epic experience with almost zero downtime, a science fiction love letter to what board gaming could possibly be. Everyone should play this game at least once. It is absolutely stellar. Now, my only criticism, Twilight Imperium's major inspirations include Dune, Star Wars, Isaac Asimov's Foundation series. As a result, its lore and backstory has a notable slant towards classic science fiction tropes, including Yes, uh, more male-coded faction leaders, a notable lack of skin color variety even in the human faction, and some tiresome tropes about seductive female psychics. Fourth edition has made incredible strides in updating its gameplay and mechanics into the 21st century, and I hope that future expansions will do the same for its diversity and inclusion. Published by Fantasy Flight Games, Twilight Imperium was designed by Christian Peterson, with fourth edition development by Cory Konieska and Dane Beltrami. The art is by Scott Schomburg, Stephen Summers, Christy Belanescu, Anders Finnair, Tomas Jedrzejczyk, Alex Kim, and David Auden Nash. My name is Calvin Wong with the Ding and Dead Podcast, and you've been listening to the Five By. Until next time, Pax Magnifica, Bellum Gloriosum. Hello, Five By listeners, it's Ruth here, and today I'm excited to talk about a game I first played back at Umpub 7 when it was a still unsigned prototype. Favelas, from designer Chris Bryan, has now been published by WizKids, complete with gorgeous, vibrant art by Quanshai Moria. And despite the game coming out with less than two weeks of the year to go, it might just be in the running for my favorite game of 2017. 
The game has players as part of a government-funded program to uplift and beautify the famous stacked neighborhoods of Rio de Janeiro. But as the city council is fickle in their preferences and easily swayed, players will have to carefully manipulate the council's criteria to ensure that, when it comes time to get paid, the council still wants what the players are offering. The game is at its heart a tile-laying game, but it's a tile-laying game in which players cannot build out, only up. This means that players will be overlapping and laying tiles on top of each other, while being all too aware that only the building shown on the top of the stack matters when it comes to scoring at the end of the round. Most tiles show two buildings of the same or different colors, and players must place those tiles in a way that they're fully supported. The game is played over three rounds representing years, and the tile that instantly ends each year is shuffled into the last four tiles of the stack. This means that players are left with some uncertainty over just how many turns are left. Once the year ends, it's time to award points based on the Beautification Council's current preferences. The Council's criteria is represented by six dice. Five of these correspond to the building colors shown on the tiles, and they display the points available to the player who holds a majority in that color. The final clear die represents the points awarded to every player at the table who has all five colors represented in their neighborhood. The dice are rolled at the start of the round to show the starting value of each color. But every time a player stacks a building directly on top of a building of the same color, then they must manipulate the value of that color die, moving it up or down a pip. This adds some extra tension to every decision, as sometimes taking the chance to modify the current value for a particular color means giving up a really good placement opportunity. I love the fact that your neighborhood footprint always remains the same. When every tile you place has to cover up another tile or tiles, then deciding what colors to focus on and what potential points you're giving up on leads to some brain-burning moments. Not only that, but since in order to increase the value of a color you're building up means that you have to build over that color instead of increasing your majority, things can get pretty tricky. And the same goes for lowering the value of your opponent's favorite shades. The only way to do so is to build that color yourself. This makes the market manipulation extremely interesting and leads to a lot of player interaction. You add in the fact that tied players both get the full points for each color, and suddenly you're left mathing out whether it's worth sharing one color if it lets you win another, or if the difference in points just isn't going to be enough to be worth it. Favelas on the table looks gorgeous, as Quanchai's art makes the essentially abstract game come alive with color and charm. It's all part of a really nice production, with the delightfully chunky tiles helping boost the sense that you're building ever upwards. During play, a lot clearly hinges on the color of your buildings, and so the double coating present on the tiles is a welcome addition to help keep things straight. However, while the double coating is technically also present on the market board, it's not the easiest to see there due to the cutouts of the dice essentially removing most of the art. So if you have issues with color, I would keep this in mind. Now the game's theme itself has been a topic of some consternation, and a full discussion of why that is would take longer than this entire episode, let alone segment. But let me try and at least give a brief overview of why that is. The term favelas is often seen, incorrectly or correctly, as being synonymous with slums, and so people were understandably concerned at the idea of a game that was about beautifying a slum neighborhood. However, there's been some pretty nuanced discussions on Reddit and social media in which some favelas inhabitants have been trying to explain the larger context of these neighborhoods. The government programs that the game takes as its theme didn't just make these areas of Rio de Janeiro prettier for people outside of them to look in at. They also served to provide these neighborhoods with power and clean water, along with access to public services, healthcare, and education. 
It's all a bit gray, and obviously as a British expat living in the States, I don't have the experience or knowledge to feel comfortable telling anyone what they should feel about the game. The roles to favelas do make mention of the socioeconomic problems present in the neighborhoods, and in the end, I'm glad they didn't attempt to dress it further within the gameplay itself. A game this simple and abstract just doesn't have the space to fully address an issue, in the same way a game like this War of Mine can talk about the horrors of war, as discussed by Catherine in episode 21. Personally, I prefer that they acknowledge and move on, rather than fail miserably in the treatment of an important topic, but yes, your mileage may vary, and I would be interested in hearing what people have to say about the theme. Favelas is a beautiful, easy-to-teach, tile-laying abstract game that plays two to four players in roughly 30 brain-burning minutes. It's likely going to be coming along with me to our family Christmas, as I can see it playing gamers and family members alike. And if you want to talk more about the game, or discuss the theme, you can find me at sequentialgamer.wordpress.com or on Twitter at Roof. That's an R, four O's, and an F. Thanks for listening, and I hope you have a fun, game-filled holiday season. Scrounging for the right pieces in a big rush, then watching it all fall apart. That's how fellow 5 by reviewer Mike Risley described Galaxy Trucker. Does that sound fun to you? Maybe not. But what if I told you that it's exactly like that, but really, really funny? In Galaxy Trucker, designed by Vladja Fatil and published by Czech Games in 2007, you play truckers in space. Truckers who work for a faceless megacorporation that underpays and under-resources its employees. In the first part of the game, you build your spaceship out of spare parts you find in the company's scrapyard, represented by a pile of hundreds of square cardboard tiles, all face down in the middle of the table. The tiles are the different available ship's components, cargo storage, crew quarters, engines, laser cannons, etc. And each tile has connectors on some or all of its sides. The rules for how to go through that massive pile are as specific as they are weird. You can only pick up one tile at a time and can only use one hand. The rulebook says your other hand has to stay over your player board, but we've always house-ruled the players keep the other hand behind their back the whole time, just to make things even more awkward and funny. You can't flip the tile over to see what it is until it's on your player board. You can put the tile back if you don't want it, but it goes face up on the table so that any other player can take it. Once you position a tile on your player board, it can't be moved. The first player to complete their ship flips over a sand timer, giving everyone else only a short, frantic time to finish. When all players are done, they check each other's ships for mismatched connections or illegally placed tiles. For example, a cannon has to point out. It can't be placed inside the ship. Any disallowed tiles are removed, along with any tiles that connected to the ship solely through the removed tile. This means that if you weren't paying close attention when building, and have only one or two connectors linking the right and left sides of your board, you might end up losing a big chunk of your ship before you even get started. But don't feel bad. That's what Galaxy Trucker is designed to do. The frantic build phase, time limit, and awkward physical limitations discourage you from planning or working carefully. The game steers you towards throwing down tiles as fast as you can, hoping that you get all the components you need and don't have any bad connectors. I like Galaxy Trucker best when I'm playing with people who build their ships fast, forcing me to do the same. It gives the game a manic energy. Sure, our ships aren't as well built, but that just makes the next part of the game more interesting. That's when you actually fly your ship, or try to anyway. Every turn you flip over a card that could bring valuable cargo, but usually brings disaster. A meteor shower, smugglers, space pirates, etc. 
If your ship was well-built, it can withstand most or maybe even all the disasters. But in Galaxy Trucker, it's highly unlikely that your ship was well-built. More likely, it has exposed connectors that will crumble when the meteors strike, or not enough guns to fight off the space pirates because you lost them when a third of your ship fell off in the meteor shower. Or plenty of guns, but not enough batteries to power them, so you can't use them. Then that sweet cargo shows up on the next turn, and you can't collect it because the aliens took your crew and you have no one left to go get it. There are so many ways things can and will go wrong in Galaxy Trucker. It is a game about failure. Hilarious failure. Now believe it or not, some people don't enjoy hilarious failure. And those people are not going to have a good time playing Galaxy Trucker. It's not the game for thoughtful strategic planning. It's the game for when you want to, as Mike said, scrounge in a big rush and then have fun laughing at each other and at yourself when it all falls apart. As much as I love Galaxy Trucker, I do have a couple of criticisms. One is that the flying around part of the game, the second half, drags a bit and isn't as fun as the building ships part. I see it as the part you have to get through to figure out your score and then get back to building the next round of ships. It would have been nice if they could have found a way to maintain the frantic energy throughout the game. Second, the rulebook is a great tutorial if you're playing Galaxy Trucker for the first time, but for the repeat player who needs to look up a rule, it's almost unusable. Fortunately, there are several fan-created reference sheets available for download on BoardGameGeek that make the rulebook pretty unnecessary after your first game or two. If you play enough Galaxy Trucker that it starts to feel too straightforward, there are several expansions to keep you busy with new components, new player boards with ever-stranger ship designs, and many, many new threats and new ways things can go wrong. There's also a Galaxy Trucker app for Android and iOS, which I rushed to buy when it came out. But I have to say, the app just didn't work for me. What lifts Galaxy Trucker up from a decent game to a great game is the manic weirdness of it. And the digital interface doesn't capture that. Without it, I kind of don't see the point. I know folks who use the app and have fun with it, but for me, I'll stick with the cardboard tiles and the sand timer and the hand behind my back. My name is Sarah, and when I'm not watching helplessly while smugglers steal my cargo and my ship drifts in open space, you can find me on Twitter, at Sarah Ovenall. After years of playing Settlers of Catan, harvesting and trading goods to evolve brightly colored hexes into citified civilizations, Spirit Island is a breath of fresh air. Turning the paradigm of colonization into a cooperative effort to reject the inevitability of progress gives me great pleasure. Spirit Island, designed by Eric Roos, illustrated by a cadre of amazing artists, CBGG for a list of all 14 of them, and published by Greater Than Games, is a cooperative experience for one to four players and takes a little under two hours to play. I've played it a bunch at two-player count and once with four players. I love playing at two-player. It is snappier and a very rich play experience. This is unlikely to be a good choice for a first-time late-night con play. In the game, player characters are spirits of an island attempting to wipe out invaders who first go exploring, then building towns, turning those towns into cities, and finally spreading blight wherever they ravage. At the beginning of each round, players get to take a growth action. Each spirit is massively asymmetric, so these growth actions vary greatly, but generally encompass adding spirit presence to the board and managing your tiny deck of cards in some way. The four cards of your starting deck can grow as you add minor power cards, or a minor power can be swapped for a major power. A component of one of your growth actions is the ability to pick up all the spent cards of your deck. At the end of the growth phase, you collect energy and decide which cards you want to play this round. There are two kinds of actions, slow turtle powers and fast bird powers. 
And between these fast and slow actions, the invaders will take their turn to ravage, build, and explore. Your play is limited in the amount of energy you have collected and the number of power cards you can play. By adding presence to the board, you can increase these amounts and get access to other abilities listed on the tracks on your player board. To play a power card can require energy, proximity to an amount of your presence, and limitations on the location it can be played on. In addition, you have innate powers explained on your player board that require the activation of specific icons that can be found on the cards you play. Did I mention special abilities? Each spirit has them, and they change the gameplay significantly, adding even more replayability to an already amazingly varied play experience. The role of fear in this game is really compelling. Certain actions cause the invaders fear. You can imagine that when cities and settlements get wiped out leaving no trace, the invaders get reluctant, thinking that they might be next. If the spirits produce enough fear, not only do you get a special benefit at the start of the invader phase, but pushing fear will eventually make the win condition much more attainable. The invaders produce blight. If too much blight is produced, the spirits start to forget their powers and fade off the island. This happens when too many invaders have been in an area for too long. Thematically, this really resonates with me. I am glad that a fantasy world was created for this game. Even though the adversary expansions use European exploration as a foil, the spirits and native to Han are made up. The smartly sidesteps issues of profiting off of cultural appropriation and rewriting the very real history of genocide against native peoples. This is not a topic to be taken lightly, and I think this game does an excellent job navigating that. In the world of board games, it is easy to gloss over cruel histories or even worse, portray native peoples as objects to be conquered for resources, so I am really happy to see a game company changing the paradigm and trying something different and new. The unique theme would only take this game so far, but the solid gameplay and almost infinite replayability exceeded my expectations. I do have a few small issues that I would like addressed in the second edition. The icons for the settlements and cities on the board and on cards do not match the style of the miniature plastic cities and settlements that go on the board. This probably has something to do with the bevy of artists that worked on the game, but I, I really wanted those to match, and it creates a bit of a thematic disconnect for me when I place them on the board. That being said, the conquistadors are perfect. They look arrogant and armed, and I just love tossing them back into the bowl from whence they sprang. One challenge is that this game is really tough to teach, and even tougher to learn. The first two plays were arduous. By the third, we figured out the eccentricities, and gameplay immediately became smoother. The complexity stems from good instincts. The game feels thematically rich, and the complex decision space is built for Euro lovers. The advantages of this complexity are the varied ways you can play, and the scalability of the difficulty level. Spirit Island includes an introductory game where you're given a deck of specific power cards, which you collect over the game, in a particular order from simple to complex. In addition, each spirit is given a complexity rating, allowing you to explore more and more complex spirits without getting in over your head early on. It also allows you to differentiate for players that have less experience with the game. For experienced players, there are advanced spirits, and there are adversaries, specific invaders that work in new and different ways, which I am waiting to play until the base game feels samey, as well as a large expansion called Branch and Claw. I suspect after 15 to 20 plays, I will be ready to add more. You get your money's worth with this box. Until next time, you can find me at Kybrarian with the K on Twitter, or at Cat Library, also with a K, on BGG. Thanks for listening to The 5 by. 
If you'd like to follow us, please do so on Twitter at 5 by Games or like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash 5 by Games. Join our BGG Guild number 2810. You can listen to the 5 by on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, and don't forget your 5-star reviews. Or you can follow all of our links at 5 bygamescom The 5 by is a member of the Inside Voices Network. Find out more at InsideVoicesNetwork.com.